VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hello, welcome to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. I'm Hugh Wozencroft. Today we'll look ahead to the Champions League quarterfinals draw as all three Premier League sides cruise through. What's happening at Real Madrid? Is Zinedine Zidane building another great side? We'll ask about Gareth Southgate's selection nightmares for England. And what about switching allegiance? Is it great for the game? To help me through it all, Molly Hudson, Tom Clark, and Gregor Robertson. How are you doing, guys? Very well. Very well, thank you. you. Oh, good, good, thank good. you. Nice to hear it. Nice to hear it. Um, let's talk about the Champions League to begin with. The last 16, all done with. It had more of a group stage feel to it, as far as I'm concerned, though. The aggregate score lines 6 2, 5 2, 4 0, 4 0, 4 1, 3 0. There was a 5 4 with zero jeopardy, and of course, a 4 all thriller between Porto and Juve. But you get the feeling, Tom, that the quality isn't quite as high in the Champions League this year. What do you think? Yeah, I must say I've been disappointed with some of the Spanish sides in particular. I was very disappointed with Atletico Madrid. Um, as a as a neutral fan and as a journalist watching their games against Chelsea, I expected a lot more from them, um, both going forward and in some of those kind of tough to beat the mentality stakes that we know and love about Simeone's sides it didn't really seem to be there. Um we're looking at the Premier League at the moment and seeing a Man City team running away with it and Chelsea finding their feet under Tuchel and Liverpool struggling. And yet you could argue that for different reasons, they're all in a very strong position now in the draw with some of the teams that they've got to go up against. Because you you have to say that then PSG, Dortmund, they're very exciting because of their forward threat and Kylian Mbappe and Erling Haaland are great to watch again as neutrals and people who want to see exciting talent coming through. But there's question marks again over them in terms of their experience in the latter stages of the draw. But I I guess for all um, the question marks about quality, we can get excited about a kind of wide open draw um, if if you're willing to uh, discount the power of Bayern Munich, I suppose is the only thing. Um, But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll choose to be positive and rather than reflect on the lack of quality say it's a wide open draw and anyone can win it and you're going to get very excited about the quarterfinals instead yeah maybe on Bayern Munich I think the fact that Leipzig are doing so well in the league but they're they're poor showing against Liverpool in the last round maybe thinks uh, maybe makes people think that the Bundesliga isn't quite as strong as it was in previous seasons so well, there are so many little subplots that make us think maybe it is wide open uh, Gregor Chelsea were comfortable 3-0 aggregate winners over Atletico who were disappointing as, as Tom says but are Chelsea growing into serious, serious contenders this year? They're certainly growing as a team. And it's like, you know, Tuchel's influence has been pretty remarkable, I think, at this stage. In terms of how good they are, how solid they are, how solid defensively they are. The three with two in front, it's, you know, Kante seems reborn. Um, Kovacic has been outstanding for them as well. And I think, I think we're seeing real kind of organization a base for all their the, the we know they've got so many talented players almost too many too many to fit into the team and to know how to assemble the team but w- from that base it seems that the options he he plays ar- around that um gives them a great platform to to go forward so I, I agree with tom i think i think atletico were really disappointing in terms of you know the kind of doggedness and intensity we're used to having seen from them, and it just it just wasn't really there. Chelsea, but Chelsea deserve great credit because not only the way they can oppress them, but they were so dangerous on the break. Um, and yeah, I think look, Chelsea look pretty 
pretty ominously good, actually. I mean, I, I think, I think Tom's right. I think all the all the English teams, we, we've said this before, but they look they look in a really strong position. The Spanish teams are not looking in a in a good state. Um, we're going to speak at Real Madrid. They're not they're not looking like the Real Real Madrid of old. So Bayern Munich, we we know about PSG and and their threat. Dortmund. Haaland, his threat's not, I don't think it's going to be enough for them to be contenders. Um, so really, you've got PS, PSG and Bayern, as we knew. We knew. We know how strong they are. But the, the, the three English teams look, look really powerful after that. Uh, Molly, Manchester City uh, up into the quarterfinals. That's pretty much been the, the hurdle they've fallen at every year under Pep Guardiola. Is it more about him maybe at times overthinking things, little tweaks here or there, than it is about his players who we know are, are top quality? Yeah, maybe. I think it it seems to be sort of the last few seasons we've always thought that this is sort of going to be City season. And for various reasons, it, it kind of hasn't been. It's been a bit underwhelming in the end, the way that they've gone out. But I think like, like you were just saying there, um, you know, teams that are doing well domestically, have already sort of struggled in the Champions League, whereas City are one of the only teams that actually are doing really well in the Premier League and seem to have managed to take that momentum into this competition as well. Um, so I think that'll be quite interesting to see in the next round whether they can sort of keep that going or, or whether the teams that maybe haven't impressed quite as much um, can come through, obviously the ones that are still in. Interesting dynamic. They've already, in my mind, started to rest players for the run-in at Manchester City. Lots of changes from Guardiola at the moment. That's why I think he's always overthinking things. You've got a great side, stick with it. You know, stay there till the wheels fall off. Anyway, we'll talk about uh, the, the dream draw that we want to have uh, for the last eight in a few moments and our Real Madrid memories too. But we did discuss the state of the 13-time European Cup winners, Real, under their current manager, Zinedine Zidane, who, of course, has won a few of them already as their boss. I spoke to the European football writer, Ian Hawkey of the Times, a little bit earlier on and started by asking him if we are looking at another possible, albeit unlikely, Champions League win. I think you've got it exactly right. Uh, possible, of course, but but unlikely. Uh, the, this team compares very unfavourably with 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 the squad that won those those three successive Champions Leagues up to 2018. No Ronaldo, obviously. However, they've still got some of the core of that side, and and when they're on song, the Sergio Ramos, Luka Modric, Tony Cruz. Karim Benzema, they are, you know, they are, they are all match winners potentially. So I would say it's a long shot, but as long as the veterans can keep churning out the, the big, the big games in the important occasions, there's a chance. They have, I think, possibly turned a corner under Zinedine Zidane, unbeaten in nine, seven wins during that time. You mentioned some of their great players as well. Modric and Cruz still going. Sergio Ramos too. There's Benzema. There's Varane. Have football fans over the past couple of seasons maybe forgotten about the quality that's still there? Uh, yes, I think that's true. And also, I mean, you mentioned uh, the recent run. They, like like most clubs, have had quite a lot of injuries in this this peculiar season, um, including to some of those senior players. Uh, just just one to add in that, Casemiro, he's really important to them. He, he, he didn't play in the second leg against Atalanta, but... Uh, Casemiro, Modric, Cruz—that's you know—that's a formidable midfield, and and when they're all together, then then there's then, then there's an element of control about Real Madrid, uh, which which makes them awkward. Eden Hazard, the big name signing that had gone there after his great time at Chelsea, he hasn't delivered as yet, has he? Why do you think that is, and could he still have an impact this season? Well, I think I, I, I you know, that is the huge imponderable. I mean, there is, as we all know from from watching him at Chelsea all those years, there is a match winner, you know, for for any occasion against anyone. It's it's absolutely mysterious what's happened to him at Madrid. It is injury after injury, not always the same thing, but a lot of muscular injuries. He he broke his foot last season. And he came back at the weekend for 15 minutes after, I don't know, six weeks out or something. Um, and then the day before they played Atalanta on Tuesday, it was declared that he wasn't going to be available. And Zidane in the press conference, the pre-match press conference, Zidane's normally very sort of controlled and, and frankly rather bland in front of the microphone. He was absolutely exasperated. He it, He's clutching around to why this happened and, and he's... He did say Hazard was never injured before. Not entirely true, but 
you know, we remember Hazard as this really rather resilient guy who got kicked all the time, but but got up again and, you know, and had great, great runs of form. It just hasn't happened at Madrid. And, you know, there are, you know, doctors are scratching their heads. That the, the player is, is clearly really down about this. And, and I think there's probably going to be an, an argument ahead about uh, what treatment he gets next, whether he goes to Belgium or stays in Madrid. But yes, it's a total mystery and, and, and it's a terrible waste of money, among other things. Um, but, you know, were he, to, were he to be ready again in April? Yeah, you, you can imagine that if he picked up form, you know, this could be this could be a guy who could take them to a Champions League final. They are flying the flag for Spain, though, in the rest of this season's Champions League. Uh, Sevilla out in the knockout stage, as are Barcelona. What, what, what are people making of La Liga showing in the Champions League this year? Well, they're blushing slightly. You know, La Liga likes to beat its own breast as much as the Premier League or anywhere else. Um, but it is it's a fairly it's a fairly damning statistic. Um Atletico last night, uh, you know, as, as you saw, they they were second best by in, in almost every department, um, and and this you know this is the this is the side who are top of La Liga at the moment. Um, Barcelona shed a huge number of goals, so did so did Sevilla. Now I think there's um, that you know there is there is an economic impact in that these clubs have not signed very big in the period of the pandemic. Now, you could argue that nobody had, but you look at Chelsea last night and the, and the front three, they lined up, you know, that's 200 odd million of talent. Um, and, and, and that was too much for Atletico. So, you know, there's a financial thing behind this as well. And they, they realised that the, the age where they were, well, Madrid and Barcelona were always going to outbid anybody in the market, that's gone. Um, I think, you know, possibly that, that not having crowds in stadiums doesn't help either. You know, that these are these are clubs that play in big stadiums. Um, but yes, I mean, it, it, you know, they're on a bit of a downer. And, uh, you know, Barcelona would never say, oh, we'd like Real Madrid to be Spain's ambassadors for this season. I think, I think there would be, you know, there would, there would be a secret wish that Real Madrid can at least do something uh, respectable to, to show that La Liga is, 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 is still a big force in Europe. And uh, in a moment, we're going to be talking about our memories of Madrid, Ian. I just quickly wondered if there is a standout player, moment, game for you that, that signifies the club. Uh, OK, so um, I have a particular interest in Alfredo Di Stefano, who was obviously very important, but even I'm not old enough to have seen him play. Um, so that's way back in the 50s. Obviously, that was a, that was a golden era. It, to be honest, I was lucky enough to be to be, you know, covering the, the so-called Galactico era on site and of all those really great players who were there first original Ronaldo I mean honestly that guy with a with a ball at his feet and when he joined Real Madrid he was he was big and his knees had gone but over 10 yards he was just fantastic so so I would go with with who we like to call the original Ronaldo the greatest Ronaldo my thanks to Ian Hawkey. Uh, we thought we used this chance, though, looking at Real Madrid to remember our mad and memorable Madrid moments. Tom, I'll start with you. What, what, what or who signifies Real Madrid to you? If there's one surefire way of cheering yourself up, it's to go back and watch some of the Real Madrid teams of the late 90s and early noughties. That'll instantly put a smile on your face. Um because that's the era that I think of when I think of Real Madrid. Um, they've obviously been a great side for a long time, but I put this out on social media as well and got lots of replies back about the Zidans, the Figos, the Rauls, the Casillas, all, all those great, great, great players that we came to know and love who came uh, to great prominence and success at Real Madrid. But for me, it was the other players that perhaps weren't the superstars. It was the... Not they were better than eight out of ten players, but it was the other players in the team and in the squad that you got to see and got to watch. And for me, Fernando Redondo for Real Madrid in the 2000 team was just superb. Not he sounds like a footballer for a start. Fernando Redondo. If you if someone you went up to someone and said, "What does Fernando Redondo do?" Ah, he's a <laughs> he's a he's a cultured defensive midfielder, isn't he? With, he's great on the ball and is doesn't mind a scrap. 
Um, and also his surname sounds like a trick. Oh, did you see that? <laughs> in a redondo, which he did do against Manchester United, I think against Henningberg, a kind of pirouetting yeah. back heel on the run. How that didn't end up being called a redondo, I've no idea. It was a, that was a missed opportunity. These days, in you know, in a marketing world, he would have had that trademarked, wouldn't he, as a redondo. <laughs> Kids in the playground trying it and falling over and hurting themselves. Um, but he, he was just a fantastic player to watch. And he was one of these, in that area of where football perhaps wasn't as accessible with social media and things, and you got the chance to watch teams uh, in the Champions League. He, he was just an absolutely brilliant, brilliant player in that 2000 team that went on to win it um, after beating Manchester United, I think, in the quarterfinals. Um, and as I say, interestingly, watching that back, as well as the skills and tricks, there's a highlights reel that's around on the internet at the moment in which he also is flying into challenges against Paul Scholes and Roy Keane and at one point fouls Keane and then squares up to him as well. So, I mean, he, re- he really did have an- everything. And it's that kind of... It, you know, there's other players I'm sure that people will mention, but yeah, that that not quite Raul level of player that they had who was still world class. That's what makes me think of when I think of Real Madrid. Three times a Champions League winner as well, twice at Madrid, once at AC Milan. Great, yeah, not bad. great, criminally underrated, I think, player Fernando Redondo. Uh, Molly, who have you gone for? Um, so I have to start with a disclaimer that I was two uh, in that 2000. <laughs> 2000. Thanks, Molly. Uh, competition, no problem. Uh, always here to remind everyone else of their age. Um, so, yeah, my I, I guess the the thing about super clubs is they they are you sort of remember them in eras. You remember them of the legends that they've had, and they've had so many. But you know, for me, I was growing up and really watching football in the Ronaldo era. Um, and for me, the the one that I really remember as like the time you you sort of see Real Madrid for the club they were and Ronaldo, the player he was, was the overhead kick against Juventus. Um, just, just for like, when you watch the Champions League, you want to see the best teams and the best players and like the best goals and that whole sort of few minutes where everyone's just stunned into silence and then obviously the, the, the whole ground applauded him. I think it's just... They're the moments you think of when you think of the Champions League and, and how good Real Madrid were and that sort of magic that Ronaldo had for them that is very, very rare, even in you know top-level elite football. That That's not something you see too often. Yeah, the man for the miraculous in the big moment as well, Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, Gregor, who have you gone for? Tom and I are somewhat of similar age, so I've gone for the same kind of era. That, that team of the late 90s and, and early noughties was the was the one I remember and Roberto Carlos really being some well growing up and being a left back and hoping to be a footballer one day uh, uh, obviously Roberto Carlos was, 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 a, was a, a big ask to try and replicate but, and I fell a little short but uh, I li- honestly I had like a life size it wasn't even a poster it was like a billboard on, on my bedroom wall at home of Roberto Carlos and those massive size and uh, yeah, he was just, he was a kind of my absolute idol growing up, basically, as someone uh, I wanted to try and replicate. Um, but that team, I was looking back, I agree about Redondo. I was going to kind of wax lyrical about him too, because I don't remember any player. I remember that Manchester United game so, so vividly. I don't remember seeing many players as good at using their body. That kind of, you know, just all his body was always between the, the man and the ball and kind of wrestling players off. And you're right, he had a bit of a kind of nasty edge to him as well. He could throw, you know, fly into tackles. Um, but that team, that whole team were kind of... It camp- I was looking at the team that day, Salgado, Carranca, uh, Campo. <laughs> some players who kind of... Come, some people have come to know uh, after that. Uh, Anelka was on a bench. But Raul and Morientes as well, that front two, they were kind of iconic of that era. And that, that's the, so that's the team I, I uh, when I think of Real Madrid, that's the team I, I think of immediately. But if there's one player, it has to be Roberto Carlos. I'm imploring Molly to go back and look at, look at clips from this era because if she didn't know Fernando Redondo, then she really should. Because as Gregor says, there are bits in these clips as well where you can tell he's deliberately trying to win free kicks off Skulls and Keane. He's kind of like toying with them and waiting for them to foul him. Um, but I was interested in Gregor picking Carlos. So I want to know whether, um, did uh, did you ever try the free kick 
<laughs> I tried. I practiced it. Absolutely. Did you? I tried. Did you ever pull it off? No, I mean, I could get a little bit of curl, but th- that was ridiculous. I remember the first time I saw that goal. Um, that was for Brazil, though, against France, right? Le Tournoi, yeah. 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 He it did just, it once for Real, almost yeah. for, like from near the corner flag and bent it into the box and then over the keeper's head. Absolutely yeah. extraordinary. Very few players who are as adept at using the outside of their, their foot as, as Carlos. Um, yeah, but again, quite on, on Redondo, you, there was, I think it was against Bayern Munich. It may have been in later in that in that uh, that year's competition where Redondo and Raul were basically were toying with Bayern Munich and I think you know they were almost like holding the ball out waiting for <laughs> waiting for the tackle they they were kind of they were so technically uh, superior to the majority of players they came up against uh, he was a remarkable player yeah uh, funnily enough a little bit earlier on um, off mic uh, Ian Hawkey and I were talking about um, the free kick situation at Real Madrid um, during that era and he was talking about my player, who I'll name in a second. Well, I'll name him now. Zinedine Zidane, the player that, that signified Real Madrid to me, the current manager, basically being very quiet on the pitch and, and basically saying that when Beckham, Figo and Roberto Carlos were there, despite being probably technically the best free kick taker at the club, he never really tried to take one because those three would always come and, and grab the ball. And actually, I was watching highlights today of, of Zidane I mean, he is probably my favourite player of all time, but there was one goal that signified him and I had to trawl through. It was, it was awful, Tom. You're absolutely right. You know, if you want to cheer yourself up, watch highlights of that era of football. Big smile on my face this morning. I had to find the goal. 4th of February 2006 against Espanyol. It was just the nonchalant, calm arrogance of the man on the football pitch that sort of summed him up. The ball was played in from the right-hand side. He flicks the ball up with his right foot. It bounces across his body. He half volleys it in from about 30, 35, 25, 30 yards out with his left foot into the bottom corner. And I remember watching it live and I was just like, oh my word. Five minutes into the game as well. You know, it was just like, yeah, all right, we'll just beat you 5-1 today. You know, I'll score this goal. It's one of my favourites, but pretty much... If you watch his highlights reel, it's up there, 88 goals and assists for Real Madrid on YouTube at the moment. You will see what a player he was. And that is for anyone who was too young to have watched him and only sees him as a Champions League winning manager. He used to used to play football as well, by the way. Um, so yeah, Zinedine Zidane for me pretty much sums it up. And that's the reason why he ultimately got the job as manager because he is he's such an iconic Real Madrid player as well. But you forget what a player he was for Juventus too before that. So yeah, great, great player, of course, goes down in football history. Thank you for your memories of Madrid. Um, looking ahead to the quarterfinals draw coming up midday on Friday, the 19th of March, that is. Um, what is your dream quarterfinals draw? Molly, I'll, I'll start with you. Uh, you were saying earlier, Hugh, that you felt like the, the last round was a bit sort of, you know, dull. We hadn't quite got there. Um, mm. Hadn't maybe quite had some of the nights that we associate with the Champions League. So I've just gone all out. I've decided <laughs> not going to wait until the final or the semi-finals for the good ties. So I've just put them all together. So I've gone with Liverpool Dortmund, um, obviously the Klopp connection, Chelsea by Munich, um, because one of my earliest, well, not earliest Champions League memories, that really does make me sound young. Um, <laughs> the 2012 final, although actually thinking about it, that probably is. <laughs> um, and just the, the drama with obviously Drogba and everything that, that went with that final. It's one of the ones that, you know, made me fall in love with football. So I'm never going to tear down a chance to see Chelsea by Munich against each other. Um, Manchester City PSG, the sort of battle of the the new, new kids on the block, I suppose. And the fact that both of them are probably underwhelmed in the Champions League and it's clearly both of their, you know, main aims to, you know, uh, probably this season is as good a chance as any to, to really make a statement considering all of the sort of impacts of the pandemic and everything else on the competition. Um, and then that just left me with Porto and Real Madrid. I didn't think much about that one. I just thought, well, <laughs> we'll have three good ones and then we'll the other one. Yeah, I'm, I'm similar to you. I too, for the same reasons, went for Liverpool against Dortmund, Chelsea against Bayern Munich, but I went for Manchester City against Real Madrid next up as well. 
which left me with Paris Saint-Germain against Porto, which I think would be a good tie as well. But look, let's be honest, people don't watch Paris Saint-Germain until the semi-finals anyway. So we've got three great ties there, a PSG against Porto. Tom? I've got slightly different. I think I might be completely different to you guys, which is nice, I suppose. Bit of variation. Uh, I've got Liverpool against PSG, partly because I want to see how Jurgen Klopp would pick a defence to stop Kylian Mbappe and what he would come up with because we've talked a lot about centre-back pairings for Liverpool this season and I think the idea of facing Mbappe could prompt yet another combination at the at, at centre-back. Maybe, I don't know, play Trent and Andy Robertson. They get on really well. Let's stick them at centre-back. Uh, you know, they're the quickest players. You know, I, I wouldn't... I wouldn't uh, like Nat Phillips and Jordan Henderson to be going up against Mbappe, that's for sure. So I'd be fascinated to see what Jürgen would do. So that's why I've gone for that. Chelsea against Porto is the next one because I think, as I alluded to earlier, I think Thomas Tuchel will almost be hoping for a really big and difficult tie. Take the pressure off. People are starting to get a bit excited at Chelsea with what he's doing. And I think it suits him tactically and in terms of motivation to, to be the underdog. And so I'd quite like to see them as the favourites going into a two-legged tie against Porto, who did a great job against Juventus. I'd like to see what Tuchel would do, um, having having the opportunity to maybe be on the front foot. And Gregor talked about the Kovacic, Kante, tough midfield, whether he would change it up. So that's why I've gone for that. Uh, City, Bayern. Again, l- alluding to your point earlier, Hugh, about Pep bottling it and overthinking it. I think that tie would mean he wouldn't overthink it. There's no overthinking there. That's the toughest draw. So you've got to play your best players and your best team and you've got to pick his clever tactics to win the game. So It screams back three, Tom. Screams back three. Laporte, wow. Stones and Diaz and all of us saying, what on earth was he thinking? But maybe it would work. But maybe it would work though. Maybe that actually works against Bayern Munich because you, you're playing against Robert Lewandowski and you, need, you maybe need to change the system. So... Maybe that would work. So I, I'm, I'm trying. I'm thinking of my mate Pep in that one and trying to give him a help him out. And so that leaves Dortmund uh, against Real Madrid, and principally because a great test to, for for us and for him to see what level of stardom he's going to reach for Erling Haaland is to go up against Sergio Ramos, who is the ultimate Champions League centre back, both in terms of actual ability, but also in terms of those horrible things, winning fouls, fouling you conning the referee, game management, all the things that the absolute elite, elite level, when we're watching him and we're cheering on the opposition, hate him and wind you up. But my God, he's good. Love him in your team. So that would be a great, great battle, I think. Ha- Haaland v Ramos. So Dortmund v Real. Gregor, have you mixed it up? I would like Dortmund and Porto to play each other so we've still got one kind of slightly under... Dogish the hipsters team, draw. Yeah, the well, hipster yeah. draw. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's good to have so, a little bit of variety sometimes. And there's, there's not much of it, let's be honest. Um, I don't go Chelsea Bayern. I think, well, look at all these teams. I think Chelsea, as I say, they look so solid. That five, that kind of base. I think, you know, I think they would give Bayern a run for their money right now in the form they're in just now. I'd gone for City Real Madrid because I think City would wipe the floor with Real Madrid, this current Real Madrid. And I'd love to see that, personally. <laughs> <laughs> and that was Liverpool PSG. And I don't know, Liverpool, I agree, it would be pretty fascinating to try and watch them cope with uh, Mbappe uh, running behind. But just, I think Liverpool still, despite all the turmoil they're in, they need, it would be against the best, the biggest and the best, that they might find something from somewhere. Um so uh, yeah, that's why I've gone for them. Well, that that's our fantasy draw. I think looking at the the teams left, looks like it's going to be a good one to look forward to on Friday lunchtime to see exactly who comes out the hat. Um, we already know though, Molly, who's going to be playing in the quarterfinals of the Women's Champions League: Manchester City and Chelsea flying the flag for the English clubs. Uh, Barcelona take on Manchester City. Chelsea take on Wolfsburg in the quarterfinals. How do you rate the English side's chances? I think it was certainly uh, Manchester City would have been a little bit gutted when they saw Barcelona come out, um, who have been very good this season. And obviously in the Women's Champions League, they draw the quarter-finalists and the semi-finalists as well. And when you look at the half of the draw City are in, they've got Barcelona, PSG or Lyon. I mean, it's prob- arguably, you know, bar Chelsea, three of the best teams left. Um but on the other hand, I think they're coming into it in really good form. Um, it's the best they've played 
this season, certainly um, all the new signings, the, the American World Cup winners, you know, Sam Mewis uh, in particular has really impressed. They've taken a little while to settle in. Um, new manager, Gareth Taylor, come from the men's academy setup. Again, took a little while to, to get settled in. I guess, you know, learn to know the nuances of women's football and the way that all worked. And they're in really good form, but I think it's going to be difficult. I think the good thing is if they beat Barcelona, I think they take that confidence in because they've had, you know, reasonably easy ties up until this point. So I think it's one of those where they won't really know where they're at until they sort of step on the pitch against Barcelona and they get that real test. Um and while City were probably crying about their draw, Chelsea couldn't have, you know, couldn't have been any happier, I suppose, because they've drawn Wolfsburg, who historically have been, you know, a really big, big team in in the Champions League, big team in women's football. But you know, Chelsea bought their best player, Peniel Harder, for a world record fee. Um, couldn't have been timed any better, you know, if you want to win the Champions League, which is is Chelsea's. You know, biggest aim, Emma Hayes' bigger aim, then you need those star players to do that. And um, not only have they now got Penilla Harder, they've taken her away from Wolfsburg, which is, you know, arguably even more important. Um, and then they've also got the easiest side of the draw again. So if they get through Wolfsburg, they've only got to play Bayern Munich or Rosengard. And um, although Bayern Munich are a good side, they're not as good as they are comparatively in men's football. So I'm going to say now, I think it could be Chelsea's year. Um, I think they've they've got the squad depth now to really compete. And it feels like, yes, of course, they want to win the Women's Super League. They won it last season. Obviously, it was curtailed. They're leading this season. But the Champions League is the one they want. And, you know, we talk about Guardiola sort of overthinking it, maybe with City. I think Emma Hayes is the kind of manager that's just... She's so fully focused and she's so experienced now in terms of, of the Champions League, I think... Yeah, I think it's their year. Molly, I just wanted to ask a bit more about Chelsea. Obviously, you talked in the men's game when you were talking about momentum from the league. They're in great form at the minute and this season. What What is it that's come right and why is it more? Is it is it about players that they had coming back? Obviously, Frank Kirby um, was out for a while in recent seasons, but she's back and in form and she's just such a joyful player to watch, isn't she? She's fantastic. But is it about as well the, the signings that they've made? Is it is it ultimately about the money spent or is it a combination of the two? What what do you think it makes it makes them so good this season? I think it's a little bit like what, what we were saying about Chelsea earlier on. Sometimes you look at the uh, Chelsea men, you look at the array of attacking talents they have and you think actually what is their best side and what are the best players they can put out? But it's take, and it has probably taken Chelsea women a little while to figure out how you can have Frank Kirby, Sam Kerr, Padilla Harder all in the same team and, and make sure that you're not too vulnerable, um, obviously in midfield and defensively. And I think they've done that now. And I think, you know, particularly Frank Kirby, she was out for so long, uh, as you mentioned last season, she's out for 10 months um, with a heart condition. She's come back in literally in the form of her career. Um best form of her career, kind of living up to all of the the tags that she was given very young that kind of came too early. There was the Mark Sampson one, calling her mini Messi, which I know she really hated. Um, but now she, she, she is living up, she is living up to that. And for me, you know, in the form, the form she's in right now, um, she got two goals and four assists in the league cup final um, at the weekend. She got a goal and an assist last night in the league. Um, she's just, it's hard to look past her right now in terms of form as anything other than the best player in the world. And for me, that's what you need if you're going to win the Champions League. Maybe Chelsea have fallen a little bit short in the fact that their best players maybe haven't been in full fitness in, in past years. You know, you look at Leon, they had Ada Hegerberg, who obviously was the Ballon d'Or winner. Wolfsburg had Penilla Harder. And for me, Frank Kirby in this form can be that player for Chelsea and can make the difference in, in one of those games. 
Well, I wonder what price a double in the Champions League for Chelsea would be a big season if they could win both the men's and women's Champions League. And what about the Euros this summer? Could England win that? We'll talk about uh, Gareth Southgate's hopes next as the international window approaches. But as the evenings get longer and we move into spring, we are offering you 50% off a full digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times for your first six months. You can stay well informed on the latest stories, get the latest from our expert sports writers as well. Click the link in the description of this episode to get yourself started. The train is now approaching. Junction at platform. Passengers, airport, please stay on board. Next stop, road station. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As we speak, we're a couple of hours away from England's squad being announced for the World Cup qualifiers with San Marino, Albania and Poland later this month. England boss Gareth Southgate has the unenviable task of getting the huge pool of English talent whittled down to 23 names. And he will have to do that, of course, uh, with the Euros to come this summer as well. Newspaper reports this morning, though, that lead striker Patrick Bamford could be included. There's a possibility of a return for Jesse Lingard, Luke Shaw or John Stones. And by the time you hear this, you will probably know exactly who is in and who is out. But given the great players that England have, so many of them in form, it is a tough job for Gareth Southgate. Many are now asking, does he have to deliver this summer or risk losing the chance to take England to next year's World Cup? Tom, what do you think? It's an interesting one because you talk quite rightly about all the talent that he's got to choose from. But I don't, I don't necessarily think that translates at international level into success or an, an ex, it definitely translates into an expectation for success. We only need to look at the great England teams, the great potentially uh, great England teams of the past to know what the expectation is like. And I think almost with the last World Cup, what helped was how settled he was on a system and on you got the sense that he knew exactly what he wanted to do. The players knew what they wanted to do. He knew what system he was going to play. And that translated into a very solid tournament run to the semi-finals. And I think you can't underestimate that in international football. And I just think with all the uncertainty around, whilst it's exciting and it makes for hopefully a good and interesting podcast discussion debating who should be in and who should be out, it's not necessarily great for an England manager to have so many different options, so many untried players at international level to be at this point before a tournament and talking about new call-ups, you know, first caps for people. I don't think that's a great thing. So yes, the expectation is definitely there, but and I've obviously put myself firmly in Team Gareth on this podcast before. So I will I will defend him against the idea that he has to go one better at this tournament because I think it'll actually be very difficult for him. Um, and it's, it's a tough few months deciding on a system, deciding on a squad. There's, there's all sorts of difficult debates to be had. You mentioned Patrick Banford. That, in, that debate in itself is a very interesting one. Who, who, who does he select as his backup to Harry Kane? Because who he selects might then impact on how you play when you're chasing the game. We saw it with Dominic Calvert-Lewin in a recent game when he came on and England started hitting long balls. And a load of my friends were texting me going, what the hell is this, playing Calvert-Lewin and hitting long balls? But that's because that's one of Calvert-Lewin's strengths is in the air. Whereas if you play Patrick Banford, it's a different thing. So there's all this uncertainty. And I think that that only adds to the pressure, but makes it no easier for Gareth Southgate. If anything, it makes it harder. I agree with you. He hasn't really settled on the best formation for his side. Uh, there have been question marks over the, the defence. John Stones might solve that. Luke Shaw as well. Um, 
Gregor, what do you think? These World Cup qualifiers coming up, do you think he has to settle on, firstly, how he wants to play, but also who his best team is, is going to be going forward? I don't think it's that straightforward in international football, certainly with the, what your best team is. I think a system, yeah, it'd be good. And like, I've been, <laughs> we've, we've had this discussion before. I think you should, uh, particularly with Shaw, Shaw's re-emergence, and, and Stones, you know, you've got two, two England are weak in centre and a half, so they've got, you know, a, a, a John Stones in good form and Shaw as a left back who's who's both looking solid defensively and can, uh, you know, add something in attack. I can't see why they wouldn't go to a back four. Having said that, I was watching Chelsea last night and thinking, this is what, this is what England and Southgate would kind of hope for. And they they probably have the players to play that way. It's just that they don't have the time. They don't you, you don't you don't press like that in international football. It's a very different game. I just you know I, I don't think I don't think I still think that the English should go to a back four. I think it's the best way of getting all their best players on the pitch. And I, you know I, I know I've just said that watching Chelsea and they're they're leaving so many of their best players on the bench. But their best attacking players, but they look like a good a well drilled solid team with a solid base. I just don't know if they've got the time in, you know, in training camps and whatnot to to work on that system in the same way. So, I I think it's still about settling on a system now. I don't think you can ever you can ever say this is you know you'll know what his best team is, but getting those players fit and healthy on the pitches, there's no guarantee. So for me, in this upcoming uh, window, this this uh, international break, it's about settling on a system. I mean, you know, I'm a I'm team back three all the way. Team back three, team Gareth. You, uh, regular listeners will know this all too well. I, I, I think I understand the argument that Gregor and others have made about you're playing to your weaknesses, but I think it's so important to be solid in tournament football. Um, and that's what the strength was at the World Cup. And then you build from there. And yes, it means sacrificing one of the attacking players, but I think it will make England a better overall proposition and I, I but I do think the point if he's going to change to a back four he has to do it now he can't these are the matches he has to do it it's funny I was just your point Hugh about settling on a system if you go back to before the World Cup match against Holland won one nil that was the match when he, he selected a team and everyone was going what the hell he's picked two right backs he's picked you know what's going on he's picked Carl Walker and Kieran Trippier oh and Joe Gomez is in there what the hell's going on and then they started playing and you're like oh he's playing a back three Oh, when he's playing wing-backs. All right, this is really interesting. Uh, Okay, but if you looked at that team that started and the system they played and the people in that team, that you can follow the pattern all the way through to the World Cup. And that that is such a massive thing as to why they did well at that World Cup. So if he's going to change to a back four, I I don't think he will. I don't think he should. But if he's going to, he has to do it in these games. Um but I, I, I don't see it because he's done it. He's He's been back three for so long now. It'd be, it would be a massive gamble to change at this stage, wouldn't it? I think, genuinely speaking, England have to start playing well. I think it's more about performance than results in the summer. If, if England are a really good side to watch, he starts getting the best out of these attacking players, he's going to be the man to take them to the World Cup. Whether we get knocked out in the quarterfinal and semifinal, you know, all depends on the matter of defeat, really, at these tournaments. If England go to the Euros, and even if they get to the semi-final, they, you know, bundle their way through, if you like, you know, then that is going to be the bigger question mark, even if they go far in the tournament, because the, the squad is so good now. He's been the manager for some time. He really has to start making it work, getting that fluidity to their play, and certainly sort that defence out as well, which has been a little bit too easy to score against in the past. I agree. It's it, it's like the kind of conversation that's a familiar theme throughout the season about it matters how teams play it's not just all about you know if, if, if England were to win it it would be remarkable so to get to the semi-finals and as you say and it was still kind of fairly pedestrian turgid football it still wouldn't be you know it wouldn't, I don't think Gareth Southgate would be lauded so it matters now how they play and you want to see a bit of a bit of kind of I think a bit of bravery so get the foot back for in 
<laughs> you see exactly what Gareth Southgate has to do. Big, big year for him. I, I wonder as well, the big question mark about changing managers just, what, a year and a half before a World Cup as well and what that might do. So he's the man for the foreseeable. The waistcoat's not going anywhere, although it's going to be hot out in Qatar uh, wearing that. We'll see if he changes up to the old T-shirt. Um, the one player who's not going to be involved for England for the foreseeable future, it seems, not just on form, I guess, but also... Um, due to his decision to play for Jamaica, he's not in their later squad, but widely reported this week that Mikel Antonio of West Ham will be switching his allegiance, has been in a couple of England squads in the past. Southampton's Che Adams has been called up by Scotland. He represented England's youth side, Scotland playing Austria, Israel and the Faroe Islands during the next international break. So switching allegiances, is that a positive thing in football or not? What do you think, Molly? Yeah, I I think so. I think... It can be a case of a player maybe not being able to do a job for a certain country and then making a really big impact for another com- country. I mean, I don't want to make Greg all miserable about Scotland, but if you can get a player like... Um, no Kevin, chance. Um, no, that's just always, isn't it? Um, if, you can get, <laughs> if, you can get, if you can get a player like Che Adams that probably isn't realistically going to get anywhere near the England squad where we talk about the, the options... Um, that we were just discussing that Gareth has to pick from. You know, if he can do a job for Scotland or even if changing allegiance sort of at least makes that a clearer option and a clearer path, then I think that's only a positive for both the player and the new national team. So for me, it's sort of like a win-win situation because the last thing you want is players that are, you know, eligible for a certain country but nowhere near the squad and then you just miss out on that talent when that talent can help close the gap to you know, maybe a more competitive nation. So for me, I just see it as a, as a positive thing. Gregor, happy with that? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Che Adams is will be a great option for Scotland, I would suggest. And I look at you all smiling there. I think he, <laughs> he's, he's, uh, he's been involved in 11 goals and 24 starts in the Premier League this season. I just wondered what kind of Scotsman you were, whether you were the kind that says let's get in the best players for the team, even though they're clearly English through and through. Um or one of those that says you've got to be raised, you know, in the East End of Glasgow and you've got to, you know, have played for Celtic and come through the SBFL. You know, there are those sorts of fans as well. I have no problem with it whatsoever. I would also, I would say that there probably, you know, some managers would probably think that there's maybe a bit of a, a balance to be had. You want to, you know, if there was a huge influx of, of players who, who you say that is a kind of questionable uh, roots to, <laughs> to the country. Um could that cause an issue? I don't know. But look, you look for the best players, and particularly when you're one of the smaller, uh, weaker countries in European football, you look to, to get the best players available to you. And we've seen plenty of examples over the years of players who've, who have had a big impact that wouldn't have had a, an international career for their, you know, the country of their birth. Tom, what do you think of the rules around being able to switch your allegiance in um international football i think there was a recent tweet that says you can play under the age of 21 three times now and still be able to to change allegiance i mean why does it need to be that that specific why can't someone just change country when they see fit you know it's a multicultural world it it certainly is um because it's football and there's got to be rules for everything i mean if, if we've learned anything from this season it's that people in charge of football love rules um but i I think potentially with that under-21 rule is we see so many young players breaking into football increasingly um, that I wonder whether it just, you want people to make decisions for their career, to know, have that decision made earlier, perhaps, to know where they're going in their career and what their options are, not sitting there thinking, am I going to get an England call-up? Am I going to get an England call-up? Um, knowing that they're now playing. Does it also protect the smaller countries? Let's, let's say, for instance, in uh, what sense? you know, well, if a player was to play for Scotland, say, like Jay Adams, and then he got moved to Manchester United, and England said, well, do you want to come play for England? I don't think that would be... No, well, I mean, Declan Rice was one, isn't he, that we're, we're now, obviously, as, as England fans, probably lots of people Absolutely. very excited about his potential uh, as a you know, long potential England captain, I think. Some people would consider him to be. Been excellent for West Ham. I'll say at this point, I've long said that he should be playing in defence as a ball-playing centre-back, but he's proved me wrong. He's been superb for West Ham this season as a defensive midfielder. Um, but, he, you know, he could have been playing for Ireland and I think did play for Ireland, didn't he, at youth level? Um, so, yeah, you're quite right that maybe that's part of it as well. 
But, you know, it's, it, it, people should be hopefully allowed to, to do things that was best for their career. And if it's going to benefit the countries they're switching allegiance to as well, then it can be only, only a good thing for, for, for everyone involved, you would hope. Um, and you know, mighty Che Adams sticks in the winner against against England at the Euros, and absolutely, Greg, Greg will be getting his tattoo, tattoo name tattooed across <laughs> his chest. Probably, I think it's fine now that that obviously someone is switching allegiance who hasn't been playing for the England senior team to play for Scotland senior team, and I, I guess we don't see that in an, in quite the same light. The same with Declan Rice. Okay, he played friendlies and then he moved to play for England. But I actually think you should be able to change allegiance th throughout your career, even if you've played for the senior team. And I get what you say about protecting the smaller nation, but I just think it forgets, you know, the legacy of colonialism in, in all of this. You know, what about France's relationship with Senegal or Portugal's relationship with Angola? For me, imagine this young Angolan player who has talent, not playing for a, for a massive club, um, but of course lives in, in, in Portugal and, and could play for Portugal. Angola want to call him up for the Africa Cup of Nations. He says, oh, I'd rather wait for Portugal, which may or may not come in the future. Why not go and play AFCON for Angola, which would probably massively help their campaign. And I truly believe that if there's a two year period between your last cap that Portugal should be able to call him up in the future as well. If he's had a two-year gap and he says, I'll come and play at that tournament for Angola, I still dream of playing for Portugal, so I won't be playing for the country after that. If that's a decision that the Football Federation wants to make and the player want to make, then fine. And I also think that if he goes and has a great career for Portugal, and then at the tail end of his career, Portugal have moved on to their <laughs> oh, next oh, young starlet, he should be able to go and play for Angola again if, if he's still relevant for Angola at the end of his career as well. This will bring in transfer fees. <laughs> no, no. All I'm saying is as long as there's a two-year gap, because if there's a two-year gap between, it means that people aren't just saying, I'm going to go and play for Angola in the next game they've got because it's a big game. You know, there's a two-year gap and that means that you're actually making a decision to properly switch allegiance. You're happy to sit out of international football for two years to make it happen. I think that 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 has to be in there, but I don't see any reason why. Look, you know, I've got one Guyanese parent. I've got one Jamaican parent. I was born in England. I've got my granddad's from Suriname. I've got um, heritage from Portugal as well. I mean, Germany too, obviously, you know my surname. So yeah, I could be playing international football for a number of countries. Why not collect medals all over the world? I, I don't see why not. <laughs> Tom, what do you think? It's greedy. <laughs> <laughs> it's the kind of um, liberal free thinking in a world of where you know, we've been trying to pioneer on the game podcast this season. Let's all just get along. But unfortunately, Hugh, I think football is too rooted in this ideas of passion. And in international football, as you say, perhaps some of that comes through in the kind of singing of the national anthem and who's singing it the loudest and who's who's the most passionate about their country. And then you'd have Jimmy on the end who's got 50 caps for Angola and 20 for Portugal and now he's gone back to Angola and he doesn't know which which anthem he's singing anymore um, it, it would be it would be nice if that were the case but I just think there's too much of that that um, nationalism if you like and passion rooted in international football still and the fans are, you know as fans as well you get you know drawn into that we're going to see it when England play Scotland aren't we in the in the Euros Craig, we've gone through a remarkable podcast so far today. Perhaps it's because Molly's here, but the amount of times I've heard Gregor say, I agree with Tom, has been absolutely unbelievable. <laughs> that's going to go out the window soon. And uh, we're going to not be talking for a while. So I, I, I applaud your visionary stance, Hugh. I think it could it would be a lovely thing to see. I don't think it's realistic. That's an interesting idea. Yeah, the two-year window makes makes you know, makes it almost palatable. <laughs> I just don't I just don't think I don't think there would be any support for that whatsoever to be really honest but you know you have you do have a point where kind of it is it is looked at very the rules are pretty rigid although they have been relaxed over the years so um but I think I personally I think if because it protects the the smaller nations I think if a player was to you know, players players develop at different rates, and particularly if you're playing for a big club or whatnot. And if in your early twenties you suddenly your career blows up and you've already committed to play for a smaller nation, you know, if that happens regularly, then the the gulf between these countries is just only going to widen. So it's kind of I don't think there's anything wrong with committing to one. Yeah, unless loads of great players commit to playing for the smaller nations and then they they can't go off to play for 
for for the bigger nations afterwards. That, that, but that it would be like club football. You would look for the one who got the biggest chance to win the, win the World Cup. That's what it might become like. All I think is on it, my, my personal view is too many good players choose to sit at home during these major tournaments because they're waiting for the future cap from the big nation when they could be enhancing the quality of lots of these nations' football, taking their experiences from big European clubs to the likes of Angola. Senegal have already had a fantastic team, Africa Cup of Nations, of course, knocking France out the World Cup, but they could do that consistently. And I think at the moment it's very much a European-dominated rule basically and, and and that's why i think it's slightly unfair but i, I digress look, look let's end on a little bit of fun we haven't got long left to go molly we wanted to ask um anyone in football history from another nation of course you'd have wanted to represent your country and why i was looking back through sort of the england teams and looking at you know we touched earlier all the potential that maybe hasn't been fulfilled and the one area that maybe we haven't had a real world-class keeper, at least in my lifetime. Um, is probably <laughs> is, is um, probably goalkeeper. Um, and I was thinking, like, you look at the, some of the penalty penalty defeats and things like that, I was thinking, which goalkeeper would you rather have? And I couldn't think of a better version than Petr Cech. Again, coming back to the, the Champions League final that I was thinking about earlier on in 2012, just like peak Petr Cech in that England team, um, especially with like John Terry, Frank Lampard it would have just been would have been brilliant. Did a Drogba up front? Can't make it full set. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Drogba for England, absolutely. <laughs> Tom, what do you think? Well, it's, it's a tough one. I, I assume we're all banned from saying Ryan Giggs, which is which is the the obvious one. So, I, I've, but I've gone down that route of left wing because in that golden generation of Beckham, Gerrard, Lampard and that kind of late late nineties, early noughties team and thought about that left wing spot. And I was I was looking at two players, Damien Duff and Harry Kuehl, as two very different left left footed players who would definitely have brought something to that team. And I think perhaps on the back of our conversation we've just had, uh, and the fact that I've got a few mates who are Irish and I don't want to upset them. Uh, I'm going to let Damien Duff have his long legendary career for the Republic of Ireland and say that we'll take Harry Kuehl to play for England. Because um, he, he was just a player capable on his, on his day. And, it, you know, he obviously career petered out a little bit when he moved to Liverpool, but on his day capable of something absolutely spectacular. And I think having him on the left, left wing, Beckham on the right, feeding balls into the two strikers, it would have been a fairly scary proposition for the opposition. And uh yeah, so I'm going to go for Harry Kuehl. Wasted in Australia. I don't, I'm not got any Australian mates. We don't need I should probably tell the listeners that I was getting the mickey taken earlier saying that, no, I can't choose a whole new 11. Uh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought as a little olive branch, I would make, um, select an Englishman and a Rangers player at that. Paul Gascoigne. And I found myself drifting off into like an alternative reality where um, Euro 96, Wembley, Andy Gorham, his Rangers teammate, boots the ball up. Ali McCoy, his teammates, chest it down. Played through by McAllister, he lobs the ball over. Gareth Southgate flailing on the ground, and boom, <laughs> scores the winner. <laughs> and they celebrate with bottles of Buckfast on the side. No, yeah, Gaz- <laughs> Gaz- 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 was playing playing for Rangers at that time. He was, uh, you know, he was a hero for certainly half of the old firm, and uh, a bit of creativity in, in midfield would certainly not have gone amiss, and it wouldn't go amiss now. Actually, I think that player who kind of links between uh, Lyndon Dykes, who's cemented up front for Scotland, <laughs> uh, and our kind of holding midfielders, still could do with that, that kind of link player. So who yeah. better than Paul Gascoigne? There you go. Lyndon Dykes quaking in his boots to see the Jay Adams <laughs> news, frankly. Um, listen, I've gone for someone who I just think during his era of time epitomised coolness, and it was a time where England really needed a vibe. So the, the guy who captained Brazil at the 1982 World Cup, he appeared in 1986 as well. The famous long hair, the beard, uh, the headband as well. It's got to be Socrates. And for the name alone, I mean, my word, you know, playing with the likes of Terry Fenwick and Alvin Martin, who else would you want really in that team with the likes of Robson in midfield? Of course, you want someone like Socrates who was absolutely unbelievable also just ran off the pitch at the end of the game to smoke a, a packet of cigarettes as well, pretty much at the end of every game. 
you know, he was just coolness during the 80s. So it's got to be Socrates for me. We've given Molly a lot of things to go and Google after this show. (laughs) (laughs) From Redondo and then team of Real Madrid team of the late 90s, all the way back to Socrates and the Brazil of the 80s. So there's lots for Molly to enjoy, I'm sure. Socrates is a FIFA legend card. So I'm on top of that one. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. I'm going to go off now and play FIFA Ultimate Team myself. Uh, Molly Hudson, thank you for being with me. Gregor Robertson, Tom Clark, thank you for being with me for the past hour or so. And thank you for listening. Before we go, don't forget, we're offering you 50% off a full digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times for the first six months. The link to get started is in the description of this podcast, or you can type thetimes.co.uk forward slash sale forward slash the game to get started FA Cup football and Premier League to come this weekend we will see you for all of that on Monday VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen VoiceOver on settings so you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.